First reading this morning can be found on page 732. So that's page 732, Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to lose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will name you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, and you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus, says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, a God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, 
He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. And keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray as we stand. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we hear your word proclaimed, please would you help us to accept your word as it really is, as the word of the one and true and living God, and to take it to heart. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do sit down and let me add my welcome. Very good to see you. It's a great time of year, isn't it? Everyone's back from holidays. We like holidays, but it's also lovely when everyone's back again. So welcome back, those who have been away. And turn, if you will, to that reading we've just had from Isaiah chapter 45 on page 732. Isaiah 45, page 732. Now, we're starting a new series of talks today on the sovereignty of God, and the aim of this series over these next four Sundays is very simple. It is that we'd have a big view of God. Hence, for those who have seen the program card, the title for the series, A Very Big God. Now, unlike other sermon series, we're not working through a particular book of the Bible. Rather, what we're doing each week is looking at what the Bible as a whole has to say about God's sovereignty and the implications of that for the way in which we live our lives. So each week we're going to have a key passage, but then also on the outline there'll be plenty of other verses which you can then look up later. So you'll see there are plenty of verses on the outline today. You might be glad to know we're not going to look at all of them, but they are there so you can then look at them later on on your own. But I want to begin by asking how does the prospect of a sermon series, four talks on God's sovereignty make you feel? Well, I guess some of us will be excited because we'll know how important it is. But I guess there'll be others who perhaps respond to the uh, thought of four weeks on the sovereignty of God in the same way that I do when one of my children brings home some maths homework and it's on algebra. And I think to myself, well, I'm sure that's really important and I'm glad they are studying it but actually, I'm very glad it's their homework rather than my homework. 
and that I didn't have to bother too much with it. Uh, perhaps there are others. Perhaps you sense yourself already feeling a bit anxious or even angry. Perhaps uh, questions just tumble uh, over. You know, if God is sovereign, then why? Dot, dot, dot. And I guess all of us will have different whys uh, which finish that sentence. It's interesting, at a growth group leaders training meeting a few months ago, the growth group leaders said, most of them, that when the issue of God's sovereignty came up in a Bible study, uh, regardless of the sort of aspect of God's sovereignty, actually it seemed to cause more angst and confusion than practically anything else. Well, I want us to see, and indeed I trust we will see over these next four weeks, that actually God's sovereignty is a very good thing. In a nutshell, God's sovereignty means that God is in control. He's in control of everything. He's in control of the big things. He's in control of the small things. If you've ever asked questions such as, how can I know I'll keep going as a Christian? Why should I bother telling others about Jesus? Why should I bother praying? How do I know my suffering will come to an end and that good will come out of it? How do I know that a bad decision I've made in the past is not going to muck up my whole life? How can I be certain God will get me to the new creation? Well, the answer to all those questions and countless others is that God is sovereign. Well, this first talk, we're going to lay the foundations and then some of the implications over the next few weeks. So first of all, you'll see there on the outline, God has complete authority. And I've put our working definition of what God's sovereignty means there on the outline. Let me read it. God exhaustively plans and meticulously carries out his perfect will as he alone knows best regarding all that is in heaven and on earth. And he does so without failure or defect, accomplishing his purposes in all creation from the smallest details to the grand purposes of his plan for the whole of the created order. The point is simple. God has complete authority. He is king. He's Lord. As we sung earlier, he is ruler over everything. We can see that in our reading from Isaiah chapter 45. Have a look at verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of the Bible, shows us God is the creator who brings the whole of his creation into being at his command. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Revelation 4, 11, which John read earlier, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. Why does God have the right to receive glory? Because he is the creator in control of his creation, complete authority over his creation, and therefore he has the right to rule, just as a child makes a Lego model. They've designed it, they've created it, they know precisely uh, where and why each piece goes. And so they have the right to decide what to do with it and how it's to be played. Woe Woe betide a younger brother or sister who comes along and tries to do things differently. 
I've put a diagram on the outline, which I hope is helpful at this point, to show what our world is like. Okay, so it is not like the first picture, which I guess is how the atheist sees the world. So the atheist looks at the world and uh, can't see God and therefore assumes God doesn't exist. The atheist simply sees the world and sees uh, man uh, on it. And uh, whether there's a God or not, well, we just have to hold up our hands and say, we don't know. But uh, the world is not like that. But nor is the world like the second picture, where mankind is in the world, but ruling the world in partnership with God, who is represented there by the crown. But notice, will you, it's a small crown, and that is because this view of the world has a small view of God a view which is compartmentalized, which sees God as sort of in charge of some things, whereas we are in charge of and responsible for other things. So perhaps a God who is in charge on Sundays in church, but a God who isn't in charge Mondays to Fridays at work. Or a God who perhaps intervenes in times of crisis in his world, but doesn't intervene at other times, or does intervene at other times and doesn't, doesn't intervene at times of crisis. Now, our world is best represented by the third picture. God is sovereign. He has complete authority and control over everything that happens in our world. Nothing is outside his sovereign rule, however big, however small. But you say, hang on a moment. Does God rule like that in practice? That's all very well sort of in theory. But what about in practice? Is God actually in control? Or is he like the school teacher who, in theory, they're in control by dint of the fact that they're the class teacher, but actually, in practice, everyone knows they're completely out of control? Well, God has complete authority, but secondly, over the page on the outline, God has total control. First of all, his control is totally effective. In other words, he is God, and therefore, he cannot be thwarted. What God plans to happen will happen. There's a wonderful refrain that runs all the way through Isaiah 45, which is one of the reasons I wanted the whole chapter read, but uh, see if you can pick it up. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 14, there is no other, no God besides him. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Over the page, verse 21, there is no other God besides me. Verse 22, I am God and there is no other. God cannot be thwarted. His control over his universe is completely effective. He can't be thwarted by rival gods simply because rival gods don't exist, uh, except, of course, in the imaginations of those who worship them. He can't be thwarted by Satan, even in the book of Job, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks' time, even in the book of Job, where Satan seems to be given a very long leash indeed. Yet at the end of the book, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So unlike our human plans, which of course often are thwarted, aren't they? A couple of weeks ago, I put some shelves up at home. Halfway through the project, Rachel asked nervously how the project was going. 
she got the tone just right, that kind of nervous, you know, not too optimistic in terms of how the project was going. She knows from experience that often with these things, it does not go well, as I get more and more frustrated. Uh, so much so, actually, that when I had said it was going well, she couldn't then uh, conceal her uh, amazement that uh, here was something that was going well. I'm glad to say the shelves are still up two weeks later. But you see, God is not like that. In other words, he doesn't have some plans which kind of he can pull off and other plans which just don't really work out or which, or which come to nothing or something else happens and they are thwarted. Totally effective control. But then also totally complete control. In other words, God is not like some divine uh, clockmaker in the way in which he's made the world. You know, so making a beautiful clock, uh, winding it up, and then just putting it on one side and leaving it uh, just to look after itself and just to keep ticking all the time. He hasn't made the world like that. He is intricately involved in all the details of our world, both big and small. So over creation, Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Psalm 65, verses 9 to 11. He's Lord over the weather. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the corn, for so you have prepared it. In Proverbs 16:33, he is sovereign over what we would call chance. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there's nothing which is sort of random in our world, nothing that God hasn't purposed, which he hasn't decided to accomplish. Matthew 10:29, he is Lord even over the most insignificant of his creatures. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? You see, God isn't so big, so sovereign, that he then becomes completely remote, so sort of bound up with all the the big issues of running the world, that he isn't concerned about the smallest of his creatures, the tiniest corners of his creation. So totally complete control over creation and over history. Let's look at Isaiah 45 in a bit more detail. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now, the central uh, character in Isaiah 45 is King Cyrus. So here we are, seven, eight hundred years or so before the birth of the Lord Jesus. He is the ruler of the mighty Persian Empire, which is the big superpower of the day. And the chapter is looking ahead to the time when God's people will be in exile in Babylon. And yet God says he has plans for the city of Jerusalem, which now lies in ruins. He has plans for the future of his people. Chapter 44, verse 28. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, how is that going to happen? That Jerusalem, the city, destroyed? How is it going to happen that Jerusalem, once again, is going to be at the very heart of God's purposes for his world? Well, he will raise up 
Cyrus, verse 1, who will subdue nations before him. Verse 2, Cyrus, who will raid other nations. Verse 3, who will gain their treasure and their territory. And indeed, the historians tell us that Cyrus's rise to power was indeed swift and impressive. And the reason, verse 4, that, he's, that God is going to do all this through Cyrus is for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. In other words, just as the Lord raised up the mighty Assyrian and Babylonian empires to cast his people into exile to experience the judgment of God, so now you see God is saying he is going to raise up at Cyrus the mighty Persian empire such that his people are then sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. God is completely in control over history, but then also over everyone's lives and decisions. In verse 1, Cyrus is described as the Lord's anointed. What a shock that would have been. God's anointed describes the person who is at the very heart of God's purposes. And here it's going to be a pagan king who is bent on conquering his enemies and building an all-powerful empire. And to the person who kind of raises their arm in objection and says, God, what are you doing raising up someone like this and using someone like this? Surely that can't be right, this pagan king. God robustly defends his freedom to do as he pleases. Verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? And yet, verse 13, he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. In other words, God won't be forcing Cyrus to do what otherwise he wouldn't want to do. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Next time you wash your hands, just enjoy uh, moving your hand under the tap, under the flowing water, and seeing how actually the slightest movement of your fingers or the slightest movement of your hands will completely alter the course of the water. Well, in the same way, you see, God changes the course of history. He changes uh, the course of history. He is involved in the lives even of kings and rulers. And yet, Isaiah 45, verse 15, truly you are a God who hides himself. At the time, as God's people endured exile in Babylon, they'd all, all they would have been aware of as uh, the Persian Empire got bigger and bigger, all they would have been aware of was that he was another great power on the move with all the sort of disturbing possibilities for the future that involved. You know, what's going to happen? Are we going to be safe? What's he going to do? No doubt they felt themselves to be completely powerless, just like sort of driftwood, just floating on the sea at the complete mercy of world events around them. Yet behind them is the hidden hand of God. God has total control of his world, effective control, complete control. And yet, thirdly, our decisions are real. We make real decisions. 
our decisions have real consequences. In other words, we're not robots. We're not kind of mere playthings in the overarching sovereignty of God. Our choices are real, and we are accountable for the decisions and the choices that we make. In Isaiah 45, Cyrus, the pagan Persian emperor, he's not thinking of God's glory. All he's thinking of is his own glory as he seeks to make his empire and his name great. And yet, as he does so, God brings the end of the exile just as he intended. We'll just think of the life of Joseph in Genesis. Turn back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, page 52. Remember Joseph, the proud, arrogant brother, the one with dreams of greatness, the favorite son dressed up in his amazing technicolor dream coat. In their jealousy, his brothers intended to kill him, although in the event, greed got the better of them, and they sold him into slavery. Bought by a high-ranking Egyptian army officer, given responsibility, then imprisoned, the result of a terrible injustice, and then left languishing in prison, And yet, by the end of his life, he has become the Prime Minister of Egypt. And here in Genesis 50, as he meets his brothers, this is how Joseph looks back on all the ups and downs of those years. He says to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. He intended it for good. Notice that Joseph does not say that during a momentary lapse of sovereignty on God's part, his brothers sold him into into slavery, but then God sort of just about had enough of a grip on the situation that he was able to redeem it, and eventually um, he managed to get Joseph into a position where he was prime minister. No, in that one event... Genesis 50, verse 20, in that one event of selling Joseph into slavery, there were two parties, note, both with an intention. The brothers to do evil, but God to do good. In other words, God is not like a car driver driving on a motorway with their cruise control on, whereby most of the time they can just kind of sit back and all they need to do is steer, but actually the car is basically driving itself. Except for the uh, one or two occasions when something happens and the driver quickly needs to rest back control and do everything themselves. God is not like that as he runs his universe. He is in control of everything and every detail all the time. Or just think of the death of the Lord Jesus. Turn on to Acts chapter 2 on page 1097. Acts chapter 2, page 1097, here is the end of the first uh, Christian sermon, so to speak, at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, why was Jesus killed? Well, what does the Apostle Peter say? This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God... 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why was Jesus killed? Well, because of the definite plan of God. Why was Jesus killed? Because lawless men planned to kill him. Pilate, the religious establishment, Judas, plotted to do so. They were responsible, but actually God was sovereign. It was equally the plan of God. God is much bigger than we imagine him to be. He is sovereign over every twist and turn of human existence. While at the same time, we take real decisions and we are responsible for the actions that we uh, take. Now, that is something the Bible insists on without any explanation as to how both those two things can be true simultaneously. The temptation, of course, is to move to one of those two extremes, either to effectively deny that God is sovereign or to deny that we are responsible. But, of course, as soon as we do that, then we completely distort the overall picture of the Bible as well as distorting God's character. C.H. Spurgeon, the Baptist minister at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, put it like this. They are two facts that run side by side like parallel lines. Can you not believe them both? And is not the space between them a very convenient place to kneel in, adoring and worshipping him whom you cannot understand? As someone else put it, if God was small enough to completely understand, he would not be big enough to completely trust. Now, in the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the implications of this and doing so in relation to salvation, suffering, evil, and guidance and decision-making. But for now, I just want us to finish by thinking about the implications for our own lives and just so generally in terms of the way in which we look at our lives, both past, present, and future. So first of all, what are the implications for the past? I guess for all of us, we'll look back on things in the past and there will be regrets. Opportunities we didn't take, opportunities we did take. Uh, Things, you know, if only I'd done that, if only I hadn't done that. So easy to look back like that. If only my family upbringing had been different. If only my background had been different. Some of those things in the past would have been the result of sinful actions at yours or others, just like with Joseph. But God is sovereign. He has mapped out your life just as he intended to map it out. Your life has gone just as he wants it. There are plenty of things, as I look back in my life, that in a sense I would wish hadn't happened. But you see, behind them all, is the sovereign hand of God. Or what about the implications for the present? Some of us, I guess, will be struggling with uh, discontentment, perhaps disappointing exam results, or a job that hasn't turned out the way we hoped, or health concerns, or all sorts of things. Or perhaps you feel unsettled as you think about your life at the start, at the end of the summer, the start of the autumn, as you think about your life over the next few weeks and months or so in the direction of your life. Or you look at others and you think, well, if only, if only I was like so-and-so. Well, again, remember Joseph. God is not just the God of the good times. He's the God of the hard times as well. If we're finding things particularly difficult at the moment, that is not a sign that God has abandoned us any more than it is a sign that God had abandoned Joseph. God is sovereign. He has you just where he wants you. 
Don't spend your life imagining the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Live the life God has given you rather than the life you wish that you had. So implications for the past, implications for the present, implications for the future. What do you get anxious about? What do you worry about? What do you fret about? What do you fear for? Career, relationships, children, money, health, family, all sorts of things. But you see, it is God's job to secure your future. It is not your job to do that. The doctrine of God's absolute and complete sovereignty and control over every event should banish all grounds of fear from the hearts of those who belong to him. Your future is in God's hands. Of course, you don't know what it is. But we can trust the one who is completely sovereign, completely in control of everything, the big things and the small things. So no bitterness about the past, no discontentment about the present, no anxiety about the future. God's sovereignty is a wonderful thing because God is a loving Heavenly Father.